0: subject of today's exhortation and sermon is going to have to do with the proper worship of God and how we should conduct our worship, especially with the particular word, the word Amen. And to prepare us for the uh, lesson that I'm going to give, let's turn to 1 Corinthians, the 14th chapter. 1 Corinthians 14, I'd like to read verses 9 to 19. context in 1 Corinthians um, has to do with the worship of God in that the Corinthians were uh, engaging in uh, something of a chaotic kind of worship with people uh, showing manifestations or so they thought manifestations of spiritual gifts uh, speaking miraculously in unknown tongues and uh, showing other charismatic outpourings as well. And the worship of the Lord was not with proper decorum, with proper order. And so Paul, in a number of chapters here, corrects the worship of the Corinthians by giving instructions, apostolic instructions for how to worship God. And we come into the midst of uh, his discussion of tongues and the worship of God at Corinth in 1 Corinthians 14, and I'll begin at verse 9. So also ye, unless ye utter by the tongue speech easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye will be speaking into the air. There are, it may be, so many kinds of voices in the world, and no kind is without signification. If then I know not the meaning of a voice, I shall be to him that speaketh a barbarian, and he that speaketh will be a barbarian unto me. So also ye, since ye are zealous of spiritual gifts, seek that ye may abound unto the edifying of the church. Wherefore, let him that speaketh in a tongue pray, that he may interpret. For if I pray in a tongue, my spirit prayeth, but my understanding is unfruitful. What is it then? I will pray with the spirit, and I will pray with the understanding also. I will sing with the spirit, and I will sing with the understanding also, else If thou bless with the Spirit, how shall he that filleth the place of the unlearned say the Amen at the giving of thanks, seeing he knoweth not what thou sayest? For thou verily givest thanks well, but the other is not edified. I thank God I speak with tongues more than you all. Howbeit in the church I had rather speak five words with my understanding that I might instruct others also, than ten thousand words in a tongue. Thus far, the reading of God's Word. There are a number of uh, sports that we enjoy in the world today, in our civilization, in our society. Uh, Indeed, many people have thought that we might be a society that is preoccupied with sports and sporting events. But as many of you will know, for all of that preoccupation with sports, not all sports are participant sports for the majority of people that uh, have some interest in them. Uh, We think of football. Football has a large number of people that engage in the game. It's a fairly large team as teams go. Or we think of ice hockey in a similar situation or baseball. But you know for all of that when you get two teams together to play football or hockey or baseball the vast majority of people who are concerned with the game are not participants those are what we call spectator sports Uh, the minority of people engaged in the activity are going to be spectators rather than participants in the game at the other end of the spectrum we have uh, uh, games or sports like checkers we don't have um, I suppose we could but as a matter of cultural fact we don't have in our day and age uh, huge auditoriums filled with people that can look in on a match of checkers being played by uh, two elderly gentlemen. Uh, That is not what you call a spectator sport. That's for the most part a participant's game. And uh, you can think of a number of illustrations as well. You know the difference then between a spectator sport and a participant's sport. You know the difference between being a spectator and a participant in a sport, such as baseball or football or even checkers. And the point I want to make at the beginning of our exhortation this morning is that um, the worship of the Lord is not intended to be a spectator sport. The worship of God is not a spectator's experience. That may surprise you because, you know, if you look at the configuration in our room this morning, this is set up just like a classroom which is certainly not a participants activity, it's a It's rather a spectator or auditor's activity. People go to hear things and to learn, not to participate. Our room is set up just like you would set up a a stage play as well. Everybody facing the same direction, and there's somebody up in front. And I think that very seating arrangement that we have misleads us often into thinking that when we come into worship, the people out here are the spectators. The person up front is the performer. Um, in in some way, uh, the pastor or the elder who's leading the worship is supposed to be um, entertaining you. And uh, that's a very common conception of what church is. It's a form of entertainment. And many churches have done well at being entertaining churches. They are churches, and I don't for a moment have anything against large churches and growth. I hope that we would enjoy that same situation someday. But I do have something against churches that grow because they entertain people, because they are putting on a program that is fascinating to the multitudes, a program that uh, glitters, if you will, uh, and sermons that uh, abound in anecdotes, illustrations, and uh, pleasant stories, rather than sermons which are characterized by the proclamation. Of the King you know preachers come to you not so much as entertainers in the biblical perspective but they come as ambassadors of the king and they say the decree of the King says and your response is to be this is a proclamation not a performance but nevertheless we often think of it as a performance we think well how good will the sermon be this morning or what of interest will there be in the church service for me how will I be entertained so here you have the spectators out there in the audience the congregation here you have the performer or one of the performers the pastor behind the pulpit and then there's somebody who has these cue cards kinda of giving direction too, and that's the Lord up in heaven and so you see the pastor looks to the cue cards and then he follows his lines and he entertains the people out there And that I think without being explicit about it or being crass about it is often the way we think of the church service but that isn't at all right we have it all backwards For you see, we are not the ones, uh, I mean, the pastor, those who stand behind the pulpit, ministers are not the ones who um, are the participants in the service directly. The congregation is. This is your worship service. You come together to worship the Lord. This is a time when you are to be active. We don't often think of ourselves as active. We're, we're sitting down, we're waiting for direction from the pastor and all that. But it is your worship, nonetheless. You gather here not to hear a public lecture week by week. You gather here to worship the Lord. God is the spectator. He's not the cue card holder. God's not the one who's standing up there giving the directions for the pastor to do things down on earth here, telling you how to entertain the people you have come that God might see you and I'm the one who holds the cue cards the pastor behind the pulpit is simply directing the worship telling you this is what we are to do here's what God has said this is what you're to hear this is how you are to behave to perform So you see how we have to get it changed around worship is not a spectator sport it's something in which we must all participate Bible tells us in the sense worship is with God, of God, and unto God. Worship is with God because God promises where two or three are gathered together in his name, he is there in the midst of them. God in the Old Testament was worshipped at what was called the tent of meeting, the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. Well, who met at the tabernacle? You might think, well, the congregation of Israel met there, right? Well, they did, but as a matter of fact, it was called a tent of meeting because God said, I will meet you there. God stands there to be with his people in worship. God is with us. His presence is to be felt. And when we come into a worship service, and when I say into, I don't mean geographically, into a room. When we come into that context of worship, where we are gathered for that purpose, we should know that we have come into the presence of God. God is with worship. And worship is of God as well. You know, God is the one who puts it in our hearts to worship Him. He is the one who provokes worship. How does God provoke worship? How did He provoke worship this week? By blessing you, by hearing your prayers, by saving you, by directing your life, by giving you His Word. In all these ways, we are provoked to say, praise be God. And so God provokes worship. Worship comes from Him. And all genuine worship must be of the Lord, and God is never honored when we worship him by our own devices, according to our own um, whooping up of feelings within us. God must be the source of our worship. That's why Jesus told the woman at uh, the Samaritan well that, that he must be worshipped in spirit and in truth. God provokes by his spirit proper worship of his name. And then finally worship is unto God as well. We don't come here to to have a, a, a nice time of chit chat although fellowship is important fellowship isn't just chit chat and chit chat isn't the heart of worship we come here that we might speak to God that we might praise God that our thoughts might be centered on God that we might focus on our maker and our redeemer our king and our coming judge we come to worship God so that's why I say worship is not a spectator sport And worship is with God, it is of God, and it is unto God. Worship is for God's praise. It doesn't center on ourselves. Audience entertainment or the minister's popularity or performance are not the crucial parts of worship. In fact, uh, while it's not really inappropriate, and I wouldn't want to stop you from commenting on the sermon from time to time, Sometimes the sermon goes overtime, sometimes it's edifying, sometimes it's boring. And I hear these remarks, sometimes indirectly, but often directly. You'll thank me for the sermons I present. It really should be the other way around. I mean, if somebody trained in theology and somebody's ordained to the ministry, I should be commending you on your worship. I'd say, you really worshiped the Lord today. I could really tell your hearts were in it. You see, worship is not centered on me. And it's not centered on some kind of performance or a stage place. Worship is centered on the Lord, and you are the participants in it. How do we worship God? How should you participate in the worship? Well, obviously, worship isn't always you talking. As you can tell right this very minute, this portion of our worship doesn't involve your talking. And to the degree that you are talking, children, you are not worshiping God. This is the time to listen. This is the time when God wants you to be instructed. This is when his messenger, as his ambassador, says, the king has said thus and so, you must believe it, you must obey it. So worship involves listening to God. We listen to the scripture reading. That's part of our weekly worship. And we listen to the preaching, don't we? We should. From time to time, I've had occasion to ask you that rhetorical question, as you will recall, won't you, from previous sermons. Um... Now I realize that sometimes we go to churches and there are pastors who preach rather haphazardly. One week will be on this subject, one week on the other, and there are times in the life of a congregation where that is needed perhaps, where it's not inappropriate, but it's not a good policy. I think preaching should be systematic. It should be well thought out. It should have a plan. It should have a goal. And to the degree that I execute those uh, policies well, You should be able to say, well, this is building on what went before. I see the connection between last week and this week, right? But you won't ever be able to do that if you aren't listening well. Listening to a sermon does not mean planning Sunday afternoon's activities. It doesn't mean being polite and keeping your mouth shut while your mind is wandering. Listening to the sermon means, what did the king say that I need to hear? You can be sure when a messenger came into an ancient city, you know, he's been running all night long to say the decree of the king is the people didn't bother to come out into the courtyard to stand around going, well, no one will this get done. We have a roast in the oven back home and all sorts of things to do. No, they came out, they said, what is, what's so, what's so important? Why are you talking to us? Maybe the fact that you have one minister talking week after week Lead you to believe, well, it's just something else and something else and something else. But you should come in with an attitude of excitement saying, what has God said? What are we to know? What are we to do? How should we worship him? We listen to God then in scripture reading, the preaching of the word. And I don't have time to expand on all the elements of our service today. And someday I'd like to go through that. But we listen to God in the benediction. I should tell many of you because as I give the benediction, I see the continuing Um, evidence of confusion of a benediction with a prayer. A benediction is not a prayer. At the time of benediction, you don't say, um, well, now let us pray, and we're going to petition God and praise God in that way. Benediction is the pronouncing of a blessing in the name of God. And therefore, you don't bow your head as though you are asking God and you don't close your eyes. You look at the minister because the minister says, God says to you, God says to you, the following, and then there are a number of benedictions that are used. In fact, I, I have attended a church, just as an aside here, where the pastor was so aware of the difference between prayer and benediction, he even drew the distinction between a benediction and an ascription of praise, which is technically correct. Sometimes we say unto um, him who is able to keep us from falling, so forth and so on. Well, when we're saying unto God, that is to say we're ascribing praise to God. That's not God's benediction on us but that is technically with the palms reached upward unto God we say you are the one who has done the following but when the pastor pronounces God's benediction on you in this style that is God saying to you this is your blessing okay so we listen to God in the scripture in the sermon in the benediction but you know the worship of God isn't just listening it's also replying to God We reply to God when we pray as a congregation, and as we sing songs to him, as we present our offerings to him, when we confess our faith together, when we salute each other after the service, recognizing here's somebody in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, another member of the body of Christ. In all of these ways, we are replying, we are using our mouths, we are participating in the worship of God. Now, in our church, as in most Reformed churches, we put a great emphasis upon the fact that worship must be according to God's direction. I guess you've all heard there are churches that um, have things like modern dance in worship. I'm not against modern dance, but I'm certainly against modern dance in worship. There are churches that do a number of very unusual from a traditionalist standpoint, I guess, unusual things in worship. And we believe that not all of these things ought to be done. Why not? Well, because we hold to what is considered the regulative principle of worship as followers of the Reformation. At the time of the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church did a number of things in worship. They thought they made the body of Christ. They thought they re-sacrificed the body of Christ. There was the use of incense and censers and um, a a whole lot of things which, in all honesty, amounted to hocus-pocus in the service of God. And the people didn't understand the worship. It was in Latin, which was not the common language of the people. And the Reformers, when they wanted to reform the Church, obviously had to have some guideline to say Roman worship is wrong, the Mass is wrong, what do we do in worship? And the Bible tells us we have to have that guideline. You know, the second commandment says you shall not make unto yourselves um, any graven image and bow down to any graven image. Most people think that's a, that is a that is against idolatry, worshipping pagan gods, but it's not. It's applicable, I suppose, and I don't have any objection uh, to using it by way of... Uh, Uh, extension or implication in that situation. But the first commandment says you shall have no other gods in my presence. So that condemns idolatry. The second commandment says you don't worship the Lord God by means of graven images. You don't worship God in any way but by the way that he has ordained. And we see examples of this in Leviticus the 10th chapter, Nadab and Abihu offer what the Bible describes a strange fire unto God apparently there was some kind of incense or fire that they tried to offer although it hadn't been ordained by God and they were struck dead God will not allow himself to be worshipped contrary to his own directions and uh, nothing else that long 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 portion of the Old Testament describing how the tabernacle was to be built and how the services were to be conducted tells you God cares for the way he is worshipped. he wants it done by his instruction in mark the seventh chapter Jesus condemns the Pharisees because they worship God according to the traditions of men we are not to worship God in any other way but the way that he has set down for us and that is what we call the regulative principle of worship and that has been uh, written up in our confession of faith as well i'd like to read just one portion of that confession for you on the regulative principle of worship the light of nature shows that there is a god who has lordship and sovereignty over all is good and does good unto all and is therefore to be feared loved praised called upon trusted in and served with all the heart and with all the soul and with all the might but the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshiped according to the imaginations and devices of men or the suggestions of Satan under any visible representation or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Again, a very concise to the point biblical expression of the truth as our confession so often gives us worship is to be by God's direction and only by God's direction now I've taught you two things so far this morning and I don't want these points to be missed first of all worship is a spectator sport by sport I don't mean anything flippant or light-hearted but I mean it's an activity a corporate activity and it's a participants corporate activity you are to be participating in worship and the second thing I've said is and you are to participate according to the directions of God's word God's word must limit your participation we don't do calisthenics during worship alright we don't say well now as part of our worship we're going to take care of our bodies let's all do fifty jumping jacks Okay? And we don't do modern dance and we don't serve coke and potato chips and call it some new form of communion we worship God in the way that he has said so if you are to participate in worship and if you're to participate as God directs you the obvious question is how does God direct you to worship him? And the answer, although it's not a full answer, but the answer most relevantly is with the use of the word amen. Now, I see some of you are beginning to worry that we're going to be talking about becoming Southern Baptist in our um, style of worshiping God, and there's going to be a lot of amens, hallelujahs, if we uh, continue this line of thought. Where is he going with this? Well, before you get too far down on the Southern Baptists or the idea that anybody at any time can cry out Amen in a service, I don't believe in that, by the way. I think that is also regulated in the Bible. But let's remember that they've got something that is very biblical in their service and something that's been lacking in ours. And so this uh, sermon today has been directed at the reformation of our own worship because it's been lacking the Amen that the Bible says the worship of God should have. The word amen uh, literally comes from the Hebrew, amen, and it's an adjective in Hebrew meaning firm or reliable or sure. Something is reliable and it's sure. It's firm if you say that it's amen. Metaphorically, uh, it is faithful. You can depend on it. It's trustworthy. Uh, The verb in Hebrew Aman, that is used, uh, aman, amen, obviously, or the background for our word, amen. Aman means that something supports something else. It is is confirmatory, uh, supportive of something, and therefore the word to have faith or to believe in Hebrew is the word aman as well, and based on that root. When you believe something, When you support something, when you confirm something, when you see it as faithful and true and reliable, when you want to say that it's firm, you say "Amen" or amen, and that comes over into Greek. Uh, The actual sound of the Hebrew is then put into Greek letters so that you have the amen, and English is the use of the Greek word, which is nothing more but the Hebrew word transliterated, amen. Okay, so... Amen, so often, we are told, means let it be. However, more basically, to say amen is to say, I believe it, it is firm. And so be it adds to it the idea of, and I hope it will come about when a petition is given. So when I pray, Lord, please heal so and so of the following disease, and then I say amen, I'm saying, and let it be true. Bring it about, Lord, so be it. It shows faith that God will bless that. It shows confidence in what is being said. And so the word amen is used by God's people and has been used by God's people through the ages to confirm a statement with emphasis. Uh, In a word, it is to say assuredly. So when you say amen to the sermon, you're saying assuredly. It is true. Let it be. When we say amen at the end of our prayers, we are saying, God, let it be. It's firm, it's reliable, it's trustworthy. Now, in the Old Testament, it turns out that the speaking of the Amen by the congregation was very important. It was a crucial part of Old Testament worship. In fact, it came to be, uh, to have such importance among the Jews that they even had superstitions that grew up around the use of the word Amen. So that it was said, um, for instance, in the Jewish writings, that if a man said the Amen very quickly, his blessing would be a very quick and short blessing. But if he drew out his Amen and said, Amen, God then would bless him for a long period of time. Well, we don't hold any of that kind of hocus-pocus any more than we hold to Roman Catholic hocus-pocus in our worship. Uh, but nevertheless, the Amen, that shows you how important the Amen was to the Jews. In the Old Testament, we see the use Of the Amen among the Jews especially uh, in their corporate worship and at the time of their oaths their prayers and their um, their vows to God in Numbers the fifth chapter when a woman comes before the priest uh, to be tested for her sincerity and her purity the priest reads out a curse that will take place on this woman if she has told the lie and she is to say Amen what does men" mean there? It means I submit to it. Let it be. Let that happen to me. That is what is called a self-maledictory oath. She's bringing upon herself malediction, not benediction, malediction. Something evil will happen. And she says, let it happen if I'm not telling the truth. In a Deuteronomy, the 27th chapter, we often focus on Deuteronomy 28 in our circles, by the way, the blessings of the covenant that God has promised. In Deuteronomy 27 we read of the curses of the Covenant that are to be read out and at Mount Ebal uh, in a regular um, pattern uh, year by year these curses were to be read and there's a long list of them from verses 15 to 26 for instance cursed be the man that makes a graven or molten image an abomination to Jehovah that's the first one the work of the hand of the craftsman sets it up in secret and then notice And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. They say, let that curse be ours if we do that. And then the next one, blessed is he that removes his neighbor's landmark. And all the people shall answer and say, Amen. See, that wasn't just a declaration. The king says, I will damn you if you do the following things. The people were to say, so be it. And We we like to say, Amen, when we hear good things. God you know, make our church grow, God make our people to be well, God do this and that and the other that are gonna, that's going to benefit us. We say, oh, amen, amen. But the first use of amen in the Old Testament was, we will submit to whatever the judge says. Amen. Let it be. The amen also indicated commitment to the Lord. In Nehemiah, the fifth chapter, we see this. Nehemiah 5, verse 13. Also I shook out my lap and said, So God shake out every man from his house and from his labor that performs not this promise, even thus be he shaken out and emptied. And all the assembly said, Amen, praise Jehovah. Anybody who doesn't keep this promise, but Amen, it will be firm, we will do it. Nehemiah 8.6 shows us the congregation praising God with the Amen And Ezra blessed Jehovah, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, with the lifting up of their hands, and they bowed their heads and worshipped Jehovah with their faces to the ground. And so we see the Amen used to say, we submit to you, Lord, let the curses of the covenant be upon us if we don't keep them. We are committed to you, we have promised to do things, we will do it. And we praise you, saying you deserve this praise in particular. Now I don't know how many of you noticed that in our scripture reading, uh, excuse me, in our responsive reading this morning, we were reading Psalm 106 and at the very end of Psalm 106, verse 48 says, "Blessed be Jehovah, the God of Israel, from everlasting even to everlasting." And then a commandment is given, an exhortation, and let all the people say, "Amen." You see, in the Old Testament, the people were to say "Amen." When curses were pronounced, they were to say, Amen. When promises were uh, called for, they were to say, Amen. When God's name was uplifted in praise, they were to say, Amen. Amen was something that was constant in the congregational worship the Lord in the Old Testament. God has given direction for his people then. He has said that they are to respond to the elements of worship by saying, Amen. Now, before you say, oh, well, that was Old Testament... Our scripture reading this morning in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 16 says, Otherwise, if you bless with the Spirit, how shall he that fills the place of the unlearned say the amen at the giving of thanks, seeing he knows not what you say? Now Paul's point here, interestingly, is not about saying the amen. It's about tongues. And Paul, and this is something of a rebuke to our Pentecostal brothers today, I believe, Paul says, Tongues don't have a very important place and often shouldn't have any place in the worship of God. Why? Because worship is for group participation and for edification. And when somebody speaks in an unknown language, that doesn't help anybody unless there's an interpreter and then he has rules for interpretation and how many people should speak in tongues and that sort of thing. But one of the ways Paul makes his his points about the speaking in tongues is to say, look, if you speak in a tongue... Then those who are unlearned, those who don't know the language, how will they say the Amen at the end of the service? The Amen, the well-known, the customary Amen that was part of early Christian worship. In fact, the Christians took over from the Jewish synagogues the use of the congregational audible uh, declaration of Amen, took it over from the Jews And we read in the early church fathers that that was so much a part of the worship and so enthusiastic a part of worship and so loud as part of the worship that Jerome says it sounded like a thunder when the people would say amen at various points in the worship of God. There's a lot more we could say about the amen this morning. Jesus is called the amen of God, the one who is truly reliable and the one in whom we confirm our prayers, and believe the Word of God. Isaiah calls Jehovah the Amen, the faithful God. In Christ, all the promises of God are yes and Amen, Paul says. Amen is crucial to Christian theology, the reliability of God and our faithful following of Him. But it's also crucial as part of worship. And that's my point this morning. You are to be participating in the worship of God. Okay, So don't ever come to church and think that you're going to be entertained. I mean, if you are entertained, well, that's nice, but that's not why you're here. You're here to entertain the Lord, to perform before Him, to worship His name. And one of the ways in which God requires you to worship Him is by saying, Amen. Before we close, very briefly, I must warn you that there are times that you should not say, Amen. In the first place, you shouldn't say, Amen, just as part of uh, some kind of uh, uh, self-performance, some kind of way of uh, pushing yourself forward and letting people know you're there. We don't say amen just to show off. And so often in in very loose church services, I'm afraid that's what happens, is you have people that are just pushing themselves forward uh, by speaking out in church. The amen is appropriate at set times. For instance, after a prayer, and after we have sung God's praise, The Amen is to be heard. And it's to be heard. We don't say because we're embarrassed. Amen. We say, Amen. Lord, I believe it. And when you say Amen, that means you make the prayer your own. You make the song, the hymn that we've sung, your own. But there are times, even after we've regulated the times that we say Amen, that you shouldn't say Amen. For instance, you shouldn't say it when you don't believe what you're amening. Okay? If you don't believe God is sovereign to answer our prayers, don't say Amen. Okay, and if you sing a hymn that says I'm going to give my life for the Lord, for instance, don't sing the Amen unless you mean, Lord, so be it. I'm willing to die for you. The Amen is inappropriate when you don't believe that which you're amening. The Amen is inappropriate when you're doing it in a mindless way. It's inappropriate to say, so be it. But what were we saying now? What is it that we're saying, so be it to? And so when your worship has been unbelieving or mindless, or if you have no intention of committing yourself to follow the path of the song or the prayer, then you shouldn't say amen. But I pray that that won't be often with you. I pray it won't ever be true. That you'll listen and you'll know what is being said in the sermon, in the prayer, and in our songs that you'll believe it with all your heart and commit yourself to doing it and submit then to the covenant of God by saying Amen and therefore from now on in our church services um, we haven't done it up to this point but with the closing hymn uh, this morning we'll be singing the amens at the end of the hymn as a way of saying so be it to the Lord and after the prayer the prayer the congregational prayer and the pastoral prayer at the end of the sermon, you should out loud, if you believe it, and are committed to it, say, Amen. So that we will not be spectators in the worship of God, we'll participate, and participate according to the rules of Scripture. And Scripture rules that the congregation should say, Amen. As the psalmist said, and let all the people say, Amen. And as Paul said, how else will somebody be able to say the Amen? Everybody knows we're to be saying the Amen, but it's impossible unless you understand and believe what is said. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would truly reform our worship this morning, that it would be in spirit and in truth, that we might truly follow the directions of Scripture and do what you would have us to do, that our worship would be found acceptable and pleasing in your sight. We ask, Lord, that you'd make all of us more attentive at worship, that our hearts might be in what we're doing, that we might sincerely bring forth our praise and sing our songs and make our petition and declare your word. We ask, Lord, that you would do these things, that we would be found faithful followers of your covenant. For we pray in Jesus' name, amen.